ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. As if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. Good morning. Good morning. It is Reality Rants. I am Jason Burmis. This is brought to you by redvoicemedia.com. Remember, the second hour of the broadcast starts at the top of the next hour, redvoicemedia.com slash Jason or slash uncensored. We'll get you there. Please consider supporting the broadcast and joining us in that portion. If you can't pay, I understand. We still give everything away for free. You can listen over on Podbean or every two weeks, you get the second hour anyway. And by the way, the second hour, in my opinion, is extremely powerful most of the time because in a lot of cases, I shut my mouth more. Like It's reality rants. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with me talking. It's kind of the deal. I mean, I see some complaints. You talk too much. It's a two-hour talk show. But in the second hour, there's a little bit more leeway. And we've done not only watch-alongs with uh, Peter Thiel that are extensive or Joe Biden that are extensive, but on the UN global Davos, really predator class sustainability agenda. Sustainability is and has been for a long time now a code word, what, for your standard of living as a human being on the planet, doesn't matter what color you are, what ethnicity you are, what gender you are, okay, is going to plummet, plummet, plummet. Again, let me say it. Doesn't matter how you vote left or right. If you're a conservative or a Democrat, they're coming for everybody and they have for a very, very long time with numerous large-scale, what some people would call deep state operations, and really at the crux of that in modern day is still and has been 9-11. And that's really one of the main reasons that I've, I've really 
dedicated my life in particular after that event to not only exposing the truth behind that event, but the uh, underlying reasons it happened and the overarching agenda of the event, okay, in this country and beyond. And whether you want to admit it to yourself yet or not, because I, I know we brought so many people in. I get the vast majority of my, my audience gets this. But those that are new and somehow think that, you know, George Bush was a good guy or his pappy was a good guy or Mike Pompeo's okay, Bill Barr did the best he could. I understand if you came here from a Trump perspective, you may have gotten over those things. But I hear about Reagan's presidency, for instance. Here's another guy that may have had decent intentions in the beginning, but was brought up through the system, Hollyweird in particular, which is a whole other can of worms. And as soon as he got slightly out of line, in the very beginning after winning and, and taking the fork-tongued, snake-like being that was George Herbert Walker Bush as his vice president, he gets shot. And there's connections to that fork-tongued-like being, as in the guy that shot Reagan his brother, because their families were so close, was supposed to have dinner with George Bush's son, Neil, the following evening. So the brother of John Hinckley Jr., or John Hinckley Jr., there's always like a three, right? They didn't put the middle name on Hinckley because, hey, they're going to let him out later on, which they did. And now he tours the country with an acoustic guitar, talks about peace and love. And, and hey, there's got to be redemption arcs out there, but talk about cartoon level. And you know that there was a reason that I included that in my film, Invisible Empire, A New World Order Defined, which at, at the time really was my opus, my swan song about these kind of events and really where they belong in this global coup d'etat of an unelectable class of people that and they know they're unelectable they don't want to be elected they want to be the people that influence and select the minions they put out in the front and how they do that that's the reality so when i saw this uh story and i think i started to post it it might even been thursday afternoon I think it might, like someone sent it to me Thursday afternoon. The first thing that hysterical, low IQ morons on social media would try to say to me and laugh at me is this is Russian state media. It's Russian disinformation. It's Russian misinformation. Russia, Russia, Russia hysterical like they don't even understand how ridiculous they sound they didn't click the article they certainly didn't read it they don't understand 
that the Russia Today article by a guy named Felix Lipschitz, <laughs> you can't make that up. Very Russian sounding name, Felix Lipschitz. <laughs> okay. So you read this article and it links to a document we're going to show you right here, which is the uh, declaration of Donald C. Canestro, who is uh, an investigator assigned to the Office of Military Commissions uh, for a Guantanamo B defense agent. Now we're going to read this, but we really got a lot to play for you today. And I mean, I, I, I'm assuming this is going to take the vast majority of the first hour, if not all of it. And what I need people to understand about 9-11 is that we have an international intelligence operation. And I can't tell you how many people, after they watched Fabled Enemies, would come up to me and say, but in Loose Change, you said this about the hijackers, or you said that about the hijackers. Loose Change Final Cut, Loose Change Second Edition is the one that exploded. And in that film, uh, the original one, not not the recut. I think it may have even been in the recut, but the media was uh, saying like nine to eleven of the hijackers were actually reported as alive. Now a lot of that got cleared up in similar names. However, Ada's father came out and said that he had just talked to his son. Uh, the propaganda machine was in the works. You really didn't know what exactly was to believe with those guys. But as things got deeper and darker into my research, you realize that the vast majority of these guys had connections to military bases, were trained on them. Some had been uh, living with, Khalid al-Madar included, an FBI informant and asset wasn't the only one. And the CIA was absolutely warned about the hijackers. On top of that, there was another shadow network that seemed to be um, following and monitoring some of these people that was outside of the U.S. military industrial complex, okay? And in the Israeli uh, Mossad and IDF and basically their network, through not only the art students you hear, hear about, but also mall kiosks, across the country. Now, when I tell you that the CIA seemed to have protected these guys, it's in my film, Invisible Empire, or no, I'm sorry, it's in my film, Fabled Enemies. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal that Diane Albright, and we're gonna show this clip, we're even gonna show you how Operation Vulgar Betrayal under the FBI knew how the money moved and knew how it worked and couldn't do anything about it. Okay, it's a big deal because these guys were running live stakings of planes before the hijackings, the actual ones. And that is evidence via the James Woods event on Flight 11. And in, the, in a video I'm going to play from four years ago, it's about 16 minutes long, I'm going to show you that Khalid Al-Madar was allegedly on a plane in August prior to 9-11 with three other guys casing the plane, and he should have never been on that plane. He's supposedly the lead hijacker on 77. Now, my critics on every side of the fence, right? When I, I debunk, for instance, uh, the no plane theory, 
Okay, because it's it's absurd. It was there to um, really obfuscate issues like the one we're talking about, and then legitimate physical things you could prove, like the controlled demolition of seven and others. Okay, like the, that's why a lot of that stuff, the the fantastical stuff, came out. It, it, it wasn't because you know it was a real theory. I mean, number one, there are crazy people. We have to understand that. But number two, okay. You put in purposeful disinformation that you hope will then be parroted or mockingbird um, traveling. You'll, you'll get that. Just Ca-ca, no planes. Ca-ca. Ridiculous. And then other people will come and attack me and then say, I'm a no planer because of my position on Shanksville or what we had in the second edition on the Pentagon. When if you watch, the final cut when we were able to do our own investigation and a ton of interviews, they, there's a much more nuanced perspective, which is a good thing, right? None of us are perfect. You know, more legitimate criticism and, and uh, uh, evidence is a better thing. Now, this document you're going to see, okay, is just one small part in this whole case. And RT seems to have picked up this story from a uh, place called Florida Bulldog. Okay, and, and I don't know their, uh, you know, their background at all, but this is extremely detailed as well. And it also involves a guy named Richard Clark. Now, Clark was also involved in a film prior to the 9-11 Commission and testimony called Press for Truth. It was about the Jersey girls and the and mainly with the cover up that they were alluding to in that because Richard Clark's the guy. If you remember, I failed you and your government failed you or vice versa. And I always felt he was very limited hangout. I still think he is right. He, he knows damn well he could have said more and he probably did behind closed doors. Um, but he may have been very compromised now. When I put something that's speculation out there, okay, I'm going to say it's speculation. But from my inside sources, and I never pull out the inside sources, when I very early on, when we were considering trying to get a hold of Clark and have him in one of our films, et cetera, because again, if you watch Fabled Enemies, we've got clips of uh, Bob Graham. Bo Deedle, right? Uh, obviously interviewed Cynthia McKinney, McGovern, uh, Springman. Well, if you haven't seen Fabled Enemies, it's not, it's a must watch. We're going to watch a piece of it, okay? But what I was told about Clark was that he was a closeted homosexual, and obviously they had that on him, and I believe he was married with a family, and he didn't want it to come out, period. That... And I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm not trying to get sued. Just telling you what I heard on the inside. What I was unaware of, and this was post me putting out um, Loose Change Final Cut and Fabled Enemies, that he does a 12 or so minute interview, which we're also going to play, where he alludes to the fact that the CIA essentially created the hijackers and was running the hijackers. He said he couldn't prove it, 
but it's the only thing that he could think of. All right, that that they wanted to turn these guys through Alex Station, the Bin Laden unit. And if you remember, Michael Springman said the same thing about that Saudi Arabian embassy where 17 of the 19 guys came out of. Said it was essentially a central intelligence agency front for the Bin Laden network that they were controlling. And I and I know that's a gut punch for some people, and they don't want to they don't want to believe that. But there are so many layers to this, right? The layer that it's now come out, at least in the public now, even though it's in, again, in my film, Fabled Enemies, that you had United 23, one of the other possible hijacks, okay? And you have to understand that they also found weapons on other planes. They were inside jobs to the fullest, to the fullest. However, only some of the game plan worked that day. And we may never know why or who, but my money's on Cheyenne Mountain, the E-4Bs, and a network on the ground. Okay, because you already have the net. What we're talking about now is the network of the hijackers, all right, and setting them up and running drills with them. Okay, and... I would say this, they're patsies in the regard that they were doing these things, okay, but the end game, all right, what, what they thought they were doing and who they were doing it for is certainly in question. And whether they're the ones that actually pulled it off at the end. Obviously, there are some aspects where the planes were in the air, and, and we tell you, we've shown you here how empty they were, how empty those planes were. So bizarre, so bizarre. So boy, we, we've gone 17 minutes. I've played no clips yet. Um, and in order to hammer this home, that these guys were CIA, I, I don't normally do it from a web browser, guys, but I wanted to show people this. So I type in Fabled Enemies, now to, to YouTube's credit, probably because I'm signed in as me, it comes up with my channel. But then this is the stuff that comes up, the despised icon, all this. I have to scroll down how long? I mean, I, I mean, none of these even in the title. This thing has more views than any of them, most of them. Well, I guess, I guess not that one. But at, at the same time, they're not even in the title. I have to scroll all the way down there. So this is literally right directly after the introduction that I put out there in Fabled Enemies, the roll credits, the event that day, how they had named Bin Laden right out of the gates, okay? But in short order, I think we'll probably just play the first five or six minutes after, you're going to see that the CIA was called on these guys, that they had connections to military bases, and none of this, none of this, was explored in any kind of public forum or any kind of mainstream media in a serious manner. Nope, they, they always want to go to no planes. Let's begin with the hijackers. Many of them were actually trained within U.S. military bases. On September 15, 2001, Newsweek reported that U.S. military sources have given information 
that suggests five of the alleged hijackers received training at secure U.S. military installations in the 90s. Saeed Al-Ghamdi, Ahmed Al-Nami, and Ahmed Al-Ghamdi listed their address on driver's licenses and car registrations as the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida. Another indication of how the hijackers were tied to U.S. bases was reported on September 12th by Fox in D.C. They stated, Congratulatory phone calls were made from a separate aeronautical school in Florida, which suggests inside help for the hijackers. Now, here at Embry-Riddle School in Daytona Beach, investigators say that they did indeed intercept cell phone calls that originated out of here, calls that were congratulatory after yesterday's attacks. Calls, the feds say, were made by terrorist sympathizers here in Daytona as well as in Broward County. The New York Times would report that the Defense Department said that Ada had gone to the International Officer School at Mackinac Air Force Base in Alabama. Abdul Aziz Alamari, to the Aerospace Medical School at Brooks Air Force Base in Texas, and Saeed Al-Ghamdi, to the Defense Language Institute at the Presidio in Monterey, California. The Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs at the Defense Language Institute, where Al-Ghamdi trained, went public and said, Bush knew of the impending attacks on America. He did nothing to warn the American people because he needed this war on terrorism. He was quickly disciplined and threatened with court-martial. Even when neighbors called the CIA on hijacker Walid al-Shiari, nothing was done. Now, you might think that some of the neighbors would be shocked to find out that a suspected terrorist lived right down the street from them, but at least one woman we spoke with was not surprised at all. Diane Albritton was so concerned about what was happening inside the home at 502 Orange Street, she called the CIA. Why was she suspicious? The odd coming and going, um, the different rental cars, the odd looking people that came and went. At that time, she says the agency was not interested. How could it be that the CIA wasn't interested in this woman's story? Other government officials would go public as well. J. Michael Springman, a former head of the visa department in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia would blow the whistle that the United States was taking part in covert programs as far back as 1987 to funnel in and protect Islamic terrorists. Well, it began in Jeddah when I was repeatedly told to issue visas to unqualified applicants. This went on for quite some time during most of my tour there. Under the American immigration laws, you need to demonstrate that you're going to the United States for a specific purpose. And typically, uh, in such a situation, you're going to sign a business deal, or you're going to go as a tourist to see the Grand Canyon, or you're going to the United States as a, as a student to study a particular course of study. And these were people that uh, had no job in one instance. He was a Sudanese uh, who was unemployed in Saudi Arabia and a refugee from the Sudan. But he got a visa for national security purposes after it was taken out of my hands by the chief of the consular section. At basis, though, I really think that these were more CIA assets, people that were recruited, like uh, all of the folks I've been issuing visas to a couple of years previously. And uh, these people uh, were tools to be done for a job. Well, the visas issued to the hijackers in Jeddah uh, came about as a result of it being a CIA consulate. It was the fifth largest visa issuing post in the Middle East. Uh, it was pretty much a, a closed system, and they simply brought them through there, and knowing that they would be protected by the agency, that 
people would uh, get their visas, or if they didn't get the visas, they could be made to be given visas. Once I got back to the United States and was out of the Foreign Service, I ran across a couple of people with ties to the American government uh, that told me another story, that the CIA was recruiting fighters for the Afghan war against the then Soviets, and that their asset, Osama bin Laden, was working with them. In the early 1980s, bin Laden worked with operatives from U.S. intelligence, the Pakistani military, and Arab states. They ran a wide-ranging covert network that recruited and financed Muslim fighters to battle the Soviet army. Now, obviously, when you look at that, that's one of the reasons that I also focus on Pakistani intelligence funding some of these hijackers. It shows you that in some of these cases, in this one in particular, it seems like they're working in unison to supply this current network. It is now known that Osama bin Laden was a CIA asset under the codename Tim Osman. Bin Laden would use this handle when he would visit the States. The relationship between bin Laden and the CIA uh, was essentially, uh, he was one of the assets, one of the people they could turn to for help if they had questions. If they wanted somebody recruited, if they wanted somebody sent somewhere, if they wanted information, if they wanted something done, they went to bin Laden. Bin Laden isn't wanted by the FBI, and he was on a CIA payroll? Is he the brutal Islamic terrorist we have been led to believe, or a mere frontman? My question was, is it not true that the United States government paid $300 million to the bin Laden family for the construction of the military camps at that point, then the person who was uh, testifying had no choice but to admit, yes, that the money had gone to the bin Laden family for the construction of those uh, uh, military training facilities in Afghanistan. However, he added that none of that money went to bin Laden himself. Of course, it was a joke. <laughs> Osama wasn't. All right. So. The next part gets into more of the FBI aspect, but I want to read some of this uh, right here. Uh, the defense organization uh, and have been working in the capacity since April of 2016. Uh, prior to my assignment to the Military Commission's defense organization, I was a special agent for the Drug Enforcement Agency for more than 21 years while serving as a DEA special agent. I interviewed numerous suspects and witnesses. Information developed during these interviews furthered investigations under my purview. These investigations led to seizures and arrests. Testimony I have provided has been accepted by both federal and state courts as accurate and trustworthy and has contributed to numerous convictions. I have not included each and every fact known to me in this declaration. So right out of the gates, right out of the gates, what's he saying? He's literally saying, hey, I can't tell you everything I know about the case, okay? I can't tell you everything I know about the case. During July of 2016, I began an investigation of the possible involvement of the Saudi Arabian government and the Central Intelligence Agency in the events leading up to the 9-11 attacks. In support of this inquiry, I began a review of discovery provided by the government to the defense and open source materials available 
On Omar al-Bayami, a suspected Saudi intelligence officer who had contact with 9-11 hijacker Nawaf al-Hamzi, okay, and Khalid al-Madar. During the review I conducted, I noted that the FBI file on al-Bayami released to Judicial Watch by the FBI pursuant to an FOA request, uh, a 199 numerical designator followed by the letters SD. Based on prior training experience, I noted that the FBI file designer is a part of a numerical code that tells the reader what type of violation the FBI is investigating in the case. I observed that the 199 numerical designator most likely indicates a counterintelligence file and that the letters SD indicates that the investigation was conducted by the San Diego field office. And remember, a bunch of these people are over in California. And they talk about what? The hijackers and their apartment. Stuff we've been talking about for years. Now, what do we got? We only got about half an hour left. So do I play Richard Clark first or, or do I play the Dark Overlord? We'll probably do the Dark Overlord, James Woods, Almadar, and all that stuff on the uh, premium side of the broadcast, but maybe we'll get a little piece on this side because there's a whole bunch of other stuff I want to talk about too, guys, that's important. Um, for instance, you know, SNL went on this very weird political diatribe uh, to basically, I, I don't even want to get into it because it's just going to make me upset and go off on a rant. I keep seeing these HIV drugs everywhere. Like I'm, I'm watching the food that built America, folks. That's my weekend after fights. I find that kind of documentary stuff fascinating. And I got to watch HIV prep commercial after HIV prep commercial. Is there going to be an explosion in this? So a lot of other stories as well. Hopefully we're going to cover the vast majority of those on the other side. But this is just too important. So I guess we're going to go to this clip of Richard Clark being interviewed by these two guys. I had no idea this video existed. It was after I posted the original RT article on the matter, okay, that uh, somebody else put that out there. And that's how I found really the uh, Florida Bulldog story that started it all by Dan Christensen. And it's a, it's a must read, even if you're familiar. So it's, it's a must read to understand how, you know, the CIA and the FBI yeah, there are certain parts of it that are going to work together. And you may even have, I would say, the FBI infiltrated by actual CIA officers, whether their assets are on the books or not, in a lot of places. But at the end of the day, there is this network that's really protected by the other intelligence agents, whether they understand it or not, that is what most people would refer to as rogue. They're rogue, but it's not really a rogue operation. Okay. So Richard Clark, again, he's one of those interesting characters. A decade ago, when Michael Hastings' car blew up, you guys remember that one? I remember. I remember. <laughs> I remember. So Michael Hastings was doing a story on national security, and in particular, uh, I believe at the NSA head at the time, who for some reason I remember was also from Syracuse, New York, 
And all of a sudden, it was just said it got in this weird car accident where his car blew up. Very bizarre. Didn't involve another car. Like the engine was just just kind of took off like Superman. Okay. So Richard Clark said, hey, yeah, we do have the technology and we do utilize that technology where we can hack vehicles. Oh. You can, oh. So in other words, they could have remotely crashed the car, and if they had a, a bomb or something or explosive device there, they could have also detonated that remotely after the car was virtually jacked. So look, in a lot of cases, I feel like Richard Clark wanted to say more back in the day, but he didn't want to jeopardize what he had going. And that the, the jeopardized part in spec, his motive speculation. But in this, he essentially again says that the Central Intelligence Agency seemed to be running, running the hijackers. Okay. <laughs> What we did after the embassy bombings was we came up with an interagency approved strategy. Some of that involved CIA, some involved the State Department, some involved the Defense Department, some involved the FBI. What I was told by CIA at the time was that they were now going to try for the first time to get sources on the inside. George right. Tennant. So let me just stop right there. For the first time to get sources, they have sources on the inside from the very outset. So, so even in this, I'm going to be slightly critical of Richard Clark. And why shouldn't I be? Because there was so much open source available information that proved that the narrative they were telling us about 9-11 was a lie. And he gets, I failed you and your government failed you. A lot deeper than that, Richard. And again, this network spans back. And if you look at the 93 bombing, who was it that actually built the bomb under the direction of John Antisev and his partner? Well, it was their own asset, their own informant, Ahmed Salam, their own private Egyptian army officer that had come over to the United States and was working at a hotel. So this idea of sources on the inside, especially Central Intelligence Agency sources and the Bin Laden network, I, I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical because it seems like that network was around for some time. Follow uh, all the information about Al-Qaeda uh, in microscopic detail. Uh, he read wrong on the books before. And he would pick up the phone and call me. 7 30 in the morning to talk about it. Go for Black had a reputation for being hard charging. 
Now, most CIA agents in those days didn't like to get their fingers dirty. They liked to work under diplomatic cover in embassies and go to cocktail parties. Kofor Black had been in the back alleys of Khartoum. And Rich Blee understood how CIA worked because he'd been sitting right next to George Tenet as his aide. They understood Al-Qaeda was a big threat. They were motivated. And they were really trying hard. They only follow Almadar, Al-Hazmi, and, and Benatash uh, out of the meeting. And again, they call them the, the lead hijackers. They're always the lead. And, and these are the ones that especially look like they're part of intelligence or protected by intelligence. By the way, almost 500 people watching, which isn't bad in the morning, guys. Can we get 200 thumbs up? Can we get this one out there? Can we get maybe the Tuckins? to cover this one. Hey, Tuckins, you think you, you think you might be able to do a special on this? You're getting better, bro. You let bro, in fact, that's another video I should have played. Maybe I'll play it tomorrow if we have time. Yeah, Rice Mitchell on there from the UFC talking about one world government and the new world order, baby. Good, thank you, Bryce. We appreciate that. I appreciate that. But, but let's continue, because this is important. Because on record, Clark states not only the CIA involvement, but he believes the CIA was running it. And then they lose them in, in Bangkok. Bangkok. And it's not as I originally saw, which was a one lowly CIA analyst got this information and didn't somehow recognize the significance of it. No, 50, 50 CIA personnel knew about this. Hear that? You hear that? 55, not one analyst, not, oh, we missed it. Within the agency, that many, all right, there are going to be people within the network, okay, that not only are knowledgeable about it, but at the upper echelons, they're running it. That that's why when this information is out there, all of a sudden it's being suppressed. You understand the way they update us at the White House is every morning I come in, I turn on my computer and I get 100, 150 CIA reports. I'm not relying on somebody calling me and telling me things. You have to intentionally stop it. You have to intervene and say, no, I don't want that report to go. And I never got a report to that effect. See that? So in other words, it, it's directed that we have to shield this from anybody that might make a decision we don't like. If there was a decision made to stop normal distribution with regard to this, this case, then people like Tom Wilshire would have known that. Tom Wilshire, uh, as well as uh, Desk Officer Michelle, accessed the cable, mentioning the UBL Associates coming to, uh, to the United States, the March cable. Uh, and they also accessed the original Malaysian cable about the visa multiple times. On these subsequent times, if he shook something loose, he had full range of opportunity to alert you. He did, but he wouldn't have to. 
because unless somebody intervened to stop the normal automatic distribution, mm -hmm. I would automatically get it. For me, to this day, it is inexplicable why, when I had every other detail about everything related to terrorism, that the director didn't tell me, that the director of the counterterrorism center didn't tell me. So, so Tenet didn't tell him? George, George Tenet is kind of, where's George Tenet? You never hear about most of the boogeymen in the Bush, Bush administration. A lot of them kept a low profile after the fact, didn't they? Don't hear a lot of Condoleezza. Condoleezza with the cheese. You don't hear about Rice. You don't hear about Tenet. You don't know what Cheney's up to, except for his daughter. That the other 48 people in CIA who knew about it never mentioned it to me or anyone in my staff in a period of over 12 months. They were stopped from getting to you and stopped from getting to the White House. Then. And at the same time, again, there be there. The CIA is being called by Deborah Albritton. Hmm? They're at U.S. military bases. James Woods is filing reports, and we're going to show you that, and we're going to show you names, and we're going to show you that the FBI was confirming it, that a dry run hijacking involving al Madar, I believe, of Flight 11 took place in August prior to the attacks. So they're dry running. They're getting the CIA called on them. They're coming from basically CIA consulates. They're being funded that we know about, not only through the Saudis, but Pakistani intelligence, and they're being shadowed by a network of Israelis. All in fabled enemies, all without a doubt, all provable. And stop from getting to the FBI and the Defense Department. We therefore conclude that there was a high-level decision in the CIA ordering people not to share that information. How high level? I would think it would have to be made by the director. That the, right there, he accuses Tenet of prior knowledge. I mean, I mean that, that he would have to be aware. And look, to the extent Tenet knew anything, it's tough, man, because I feel like they put yes men in these director's positions. Some of them are very cunning, all right? Some, very cunning. Like like a James Woolsey and a Brennan and, and a Pompeo, they're very cunning. Make no mistake about it. But especially with with Tenet, maybe it was just because he was silent. But I never was really impressed by Tenet. They never put him out in the public arena that much. So in in some cases, you know, maybe Tenet was guarded by some of it, but he knew these networks existed and that they were being run by Alex Station in particular people within the Central Intelligence Agency. You gotta understand, my relationship with him, we were close friends. He called me several times a day. We shared the most trivial of information with each other. There was not a lack of information sharing. They told us everything except this. So everybody also at the end of the day wants to cover their own Arnis, but there's a multitude of things happening here.
because you also have the war games that help facilitate the attacks. You also have the Able Danger Network that has identified several of the quote-unquote terrorist cells and is tracking Ada and others, okay? And even that information ends up being on a limited scale. Here they are in the NSC advisor's office, trying to make their best case possible for action. But in trying to make this persuasive case, they never once mentioned that already two Al-Qaeda terrorists known to be involved in the Kuala Lumpur planning center had entered the United States. Why don't you trot out what is the most persuasive piece of evidence you've got? These guys are already in the country. They're not here to go look at the Grand Canyon. The people who were doing that briefing knew that fact and didn't trot it out. So you ask yourself, why not? That I have thought about this a lot, and there's only one conceivable reason that I've been able to come up with. Now, there may be other reasons, but I've only been able to come up with one. When Kofor Black became the head of the counterterrorism center at CIA, he was aghast that they had no sources in Al-Qaeda. So he told me, I'm going to try to get sources in Al-Qaeda. I can understand them possibly saying, we need to develop sources inside Al-Qaeda. When we do that, we can't tell anybody about it. And I can understand them perhaps seeing these two guys show up in the United States and thinking, aha, this is our chance to flip them. This is our chance to get guys inside Al-Qaeda. So again, this is where we would part ways in agreement. Yeah, you notice how careful he is. He's going to say they were running him. But at the same time, I believe that they were sent here to this network. Now, whether they knew that or not, uh, you know, you look at guys like Ada and, and perhaps Al Madar. Ada in particular screams, screams of having knowledge on the inside. And especially when you look into Rudy Deckers and Florida and the Venice flight school there, and the fact that most people thought Ada and his crew were some kind of mafioso or gangsters, and they were talking about the family and involved in drug dealing, okay, all that stuff. And again, Central Intelligence Agency doesn't have its hand clean on the drug dealing, right? We go back to that Reagan presidency, Iran-Contra, blows up. So, so here he's being really careful, and again, I, I would disagree that they weren't brought here in particular to be part of that network. And to do that, we can't tell them outside CIA until we got them, until they're really giving us information. If they tell the FBI, the FBI can say, no, this is in the United States. We want him. He's going to become an FBI source. And they'll botch it. Let's instead, we'll flip them. Then we'll get them to leave the United States and go back home. 
they'll be our source. And we'll never have to tell the FBI that we got them here. So we do know that these two guys show up in Southern California and pretty soon thereafter, they're approached by a Saudi. We know the Saudi reaches out, meets them in the restaurant, arranges housing for them, arranges payment to them, arranges to move them to San Diego. And that Saudi has connections to the Saudi government. And some people believe that guy was a Saudi intelligence officer. And that's the one that's being referenced right now in this new documentation, by the way. If we assume, for the sake of argument, that the Saudi intelligence guy in Southern California was the handler for these two, then presumably he would have been reported to the CIA Los Angeles station. There was a strong relationship between the CIA director and the uh, Minister of Intelligence in Saudi Arabia. Well, after that, the trail goes cold about what conceivable Saudi intelligence or CIA contact with them. I would disagree. Again. And how much of this does he actually not know? Maybe on the inside with the briefings, but obviously the open source intelligence that's come out says it hasn't gone cold. And that's going to be illustrated. When we go to the other side and I play the Dark Overlords files, uh, the secret testimony of James Woods, and so many people are still unaware of the Dark Overlords files that we only got three of five layers of. And there was some juicy, juicy stuff, lots of repeat stuff. I mean, that, that deserved more of my attention. That deserved deeper dives into the actual documentation, which was vast which was vast. So let's continue on. There's about three more minutes in this. Thumbs it up, subscribe, and share, everybody. Occurred. You know, one thing that happens in agent recruitment is we think we've recruited the agent, but then later we discover that they're playing us. Here's a double agent. And at some point, CIA realizes that. That's possible. How long do you think it would take them to decide this isn't working? I don't know. I do know in August of 2001, they decide they're going to tell the FBI. In August of 2001, they're going to tell the FBI. But before that, again, there's FBI connections to Almadar and others. And in August, not sure um, where this would relate because he doesn't give us a certain date, old Richard Clark. But in August, you have the, the faux hijacking, the casing of Flight 11 in particular, according to James Woods, okay, before the attacks. The, this should raise huge alarm bells on foreknowledge, pre-knowledge, planning. And there's no obvious reason in the record why for 15 16 months they decide not to tell the fbi and then one day they wake up and say they're going to tell the fbi ask yourself why 
on September 4th, after they have told the FBI, but not told senior levels of the FBI. Why not raise it in the September 4th principles meeting? I mean, if I ask myself that, I don't. There's a very obvious answer. What am I going to say? I know, I know how all this stuff works. I've been working it for 30 years. You can't snowball me on this stuff. If they announce on September 4th in the principals meeting that these guys are in the United States and they told the FBI a few weeks ago, I'm going to say, wait, time out. How long have you known this? Why haven't you reported it at the daily threat meetings? Why isn't it in the daily threat matrix? We would have begun an investigation that day into CIA malfeasance and misfeasance. That's why we're not informed. So whether or not that would have happened or not, you got to understand, old Pappy Bush is still around and kicking. In fact, old Pappy Bush and his network were part of what? His son's administration. And old papster, old Poppy B, he just happened to be in the White House on 9-11. Also in my film, Fabled Enemies. Just pointing that out. I think it's important. So, you know, Richard Clark, I take a lot with a grain of salt, but this absolutely 100% interconnects with these new revelations of a military commission's investigator that is finding the same thing with these Central Intelligence Agency connections. They put their own asses above national security. If you believe all of this, really, I can't prove this. I have a set of facts. I'm trying to make sense of those facts. And I'm trying to come up with an explanation as to why those facts that we know are true occurred. So, so there it is, man. Central Intelligence Agency assets, they're running. I had no idea that this existed. This 2009, again, that is after Fabled Enemies. That is after Loose Change Final Cut. These articles are, are extremely, okay, extremely important to read. It, Ex-FBI agents accused top CIA FBI officials of 9-11 cover-up. CIA said uh, to use Saudis, others for illegal domestic spy operations. So let me expand upon that by talking about Robert Mueller and how Robert Mueller stopped the FBI within the agency who was following the money and knew something was wrong from actually blowing the whistle after the fact. You know who else helped with that? The deputy director of the FBI at the time, Michael Shertoff, who they would put in charge of the initial homeland security that should have never existed in the first place. A Deutschland! A Deutschland security. No, thank you. You know, because of that, we got a few more minutes before we go over to redvoicemedia.com slash Jason, redvoicemedia.com slash uncensored, where we're going to talk a slew of other issues other than 9-11. But this, again, this is an important one. It always is. Uh, we're going to play the dark overlord 
James Woods video. So you, you can, again, understand it wasn't just the CIA being called on al Sheri. It just wasn't the military bases and the whistleblowers within there. It wasn't just the congratulatory phone calls. This whole network. The only one working with U.S. intelligence. Hijackers also had ties to federal agencies. Alleged terrorists Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Zahami lived with and rented from an FBI informant. The New York Times stated on October 6, 2002, the Federal Bureau of Investigation had a confidential informer who rented rooms in California to two of the September 11th hijackers. But the Bureau is resisting a request from the Congressional Committee investigating the attacks to interview the informer and his FBI handler. Several members of the FBI had their investigations into terrorism impeded and shut down, especially when they got close to bin Laden. John O'Neill was the FBI counterterror chief responsible for the investigation into Osama bin Laden. On August 22, 2001, after claims of a repeated obstruction of his investigations into Saudi funding, O'Neill left the FBI. This document is marked secret and WF, which means it walked its way out of the Washington Bureau of the FBI. It indicates that before the attack of September 11th, agents had wanted to question two members of a very powerful family for their connections to a suspected terrorist organization, Omar and Abdullah bin Laden. But the agents weren't allowed to. O'Neill went on to take a new post as head of World Trade Center security. He would move into his office days before 9-11 and be killed during the attacks. Yeah. I have four children. I've lost friends that, uh, John, yeah. John, uh, my friend from the FBI was killed. John O'Neill, oh, I lost John people too. We're we lost too. a lot of family members. What did John O'Neill do before he worked in the John, World Trade Center? John was a FBI, in the, FBI, the FBI. He was yeah. tracking down Osama. He was tracking down Osama. Because the government didn't Osama. listen to him. The government didn't listen exactly. to him. The FBI, hold on. Let's, we want to talk Paul Akana card? The FBI fucked up. They know about the flight training. Yes. That was a fuck up for having these people in yes. our country. We all agree on something. And the important thing is you have to understand, I feel what you feel. I have lost friends there. I feel what you feel. That was my, our world trade. That was our people that fucking died that day. At a time when bin Laden was the most wanted man in the world, why would intelligence agencies stop their own investigations, especially as they were closing in on him? Robert Wright and others within the FBI also had their investigations into terrorism stopped prior to 9-11. Since August of 1999, I've been working to legally expose the very real and foreseeable Middle Eastern terrorist threats to American citizens at home and abroad. From 1993 to 1999, I was assigned to the Chicago Division's Counterterrorism Task Force. The successful investigation, which was codenamed Vulgar Betrayal, V-U-L-G-A-R Betrayal, led to the June 1998 seizure of $1.4 million of Middle Eastern terrorist funding. These funds were linked directly to Saudi businessman Yassin Qadi. On October 12, 2001, Yassin Qadi was designated by the United States government as a financial supporter of Osama bin Laden. Larry Klayman of Judicial Watch initially tried to help get Wright's story to the proper authorities. He wanted to come forward long before 9-11 we were taking those steps beginning last summer to do that. The FBI had 30 days to allow that to occur. They violated their own regulations. They covered it up. If you didn't hear me, I went specifically. I called the attorney general's office just days after 9-11. 
I said, Dave Shippers and I represent a special agent of the FBI Chicago field office who has years of information about how the FBI did not do its job, did not in any way investigate a meaningful way money laundering in the United States. You're now claiming you want to do this. I'd like to make them available to you, Attorney General Ashcroft. And I was met with a response by Michael Chertoff, head of the criminal division. We're tired of conspiracy theories. So there you go. Uh, criminal division, attorney general's office, this guy. Michael Chertoff will later become the head of Homeland Security, the department set up to fight the war on terror after 9-11. Wright was also restricted from telling any specifics about their investigation. Robert Wright was then prevented from working on terror investigations. So what happened to Wright? He was demoted in and around the time period leading up to 9-11. He's working on innocuous, meaningless things. That's what he's doing. Yes, he's a paper pusher. It's because these monies were going through some very powerful US banks with some very powerful interests in the United States. These banks knew or had reason to know that these monies were laundered by terrorists. Uh, and there are very significant potential conflicts of interest in both the Clinton and Bush administration, and in particular the Bush administration, uh, who is as tight with Saudi Arabia as you can get. The president's father used to stay with the bin Laden family when he would go to Saudi Arabia. We'll end it there on this part of the broadcast, everybody. Can we get 300 thumbs up? Can we get that before we go? So that'll be a cue to my producer to move it on over. Uh, redvoicemedia.com slash Jason, redvoicemedia.com slash uncensored. We're going to keep going on this 9-11 issue. We're going to show you how they were protected and identified yet again from a blast from the past from four plus years ago. Really, uh, probably closer to five, you know, probably right on the brink of five years ago. Now, man, time flies. Time be flying. So thumbs it up, subscribe, share. You want to listen for free, the infowarrior.podbean.com. Every day we do this, we get another um, premium free unlocked for those that aren't part of that. But remember, you can try it for a buck for the first week. One dollar, numero uno, myself and many others on the network. Full lineup coming, 12-hour lineup. That's what they're working on right now. I mean, bedingo, bedongo. Yeah, that's that's big time. So. Consider coming on over, lock it in for a year. Those that do that, thank you so much. $100, it'll save you 20. We're going nowhere fast here. In other words, we're sticking around. Still haven't gotten my text yet, so I'm not sure we're there, but we're, let, let's start leaving each broadcast. Goodbye, Rockfin, I love you. We'll see you Label on, later, Rumble, let's rumble on. We all, we all know about you, YouTube. And let's never forget the... Uh, the Twitter that we can't stream to anymore for some reason and still don't have our blue check mark. Where's my blue check mark? Where's my blue check mark? So I don't know if we're there yet. So we're going to just wait a minute and hold off. Once again, let me set this clip up. This clip is really a, I guess, companion piece to another part of Fable Enemies where we show James Woods going on O'Reilly and talking about his story and saying, hey, I was told not to say certain things until they have the trials or whatever. Really, the trials. 
Well, he was in a civil suit. And that's the only reason he was giving testimony in a civil case. Because there weren't real criminal investigations into any of that. All right, so let's do it. Got some time, went through some of these latest data dumps. And lo and behold, the James Woods secret testimony is available in these documents. Now, when I say secret testimony, I want people to understand that this is not his initial FAA report pre 9-11, but this is his testimony in regards to the lawsuits. Now, this all came out and that this was going to be possibly in there. When in layer one and two, we got a taste that James Woods was in the document, especially in layer two. Here you saw the lawyers talking about articles that said James Woods would not talk about the Middle Eastern men. He told the FBI he encountered a few months back. He will say this. We find out it's not really that long. It's uh, an August 1st incident. And then they refer, uh, refer also to um, his O'Reilly appearance. We got all this documentation down here. And there you see the Bill O'Reilly stuff, right? Well, if you go over to my film Fabled Enemies, I just want to play a clip here so you can get an idea of what we're about to talk about. This is what he was talking about post 9-11, but not giving a lot of details. I was on a flight uh, without going into the details of, of what made me suspicious of these four men, although it would have been blatantly obvious to the most casual observer. Uh, I took it upon myself to go to the flight attendant and ask to speak to the pilot of the plane. The first officer came out. I reported to him that I felt that the four men and I said, can you look over my shoulder and see who I'm talking about? And he said, uh, yeah, <laughs> I said, I think they're going to hijack this plane. I mean, everything they're doing. And I explained to him these details, which I've been asked to keep private until whatever jurisdiction, you know, uh, whatever trials may take place. Uh, their behavior was such that, uh, that that I felt they were going to hijack the plane. I found out later that not only was did he make a report, but the flight attendant also made a report of my suspicions to the FAA. My friend Scott said to me, you know, remember that flight you took in August? I said, yeah, I've been thinking about it all day. He said, well, maybe you should call the FBI. And I said, I'm sure they're being inundated, but I thought it over and I called the local office. Quarter to seven the next morning, I get a phone call that actually wakes me up. And he said, uh, we want to talk to you about the flight that you took in August. I said, oh, did the did the manifest match of any of the flights yesterday and my flight? He said, well, we can't tell you that. I said, well, look, I'll get ready and I'll, you know, I'll come down to the, uh, to the federal building. He said, we're outside your house. We'll just wait for wow. you. <laughs> So we're just going to stop it there and we're going to get to what everybody wants to see, what everybody came here for, the James Woods testimony, okay? So here it is, guys. Now it was videotaped. Uh, I'm going to show you the search feature. seems to be a little buggy right now, but I'm going to show you everything that I think is, is pretty relevant in this. Now, he talks about how these guys are all in jumpsuits. Okay, they're all basically there's no luggage, no luggage. So we'll start there. Let's see if we can find that. Oh, come on, not a carry on. Let's see if luggage comes up. No, of course not. What about carry? Is this not going to work? Is James not going to work? Oh, that one worked. All right. So let's see, this is all the way down. See, <laughs> it found James Woods all the way there. So let's try again. Carrie. 
There we go. Carry on luggage. Perfect. So this is why they looked uh, suspicious. And I looked at them and, and I just thought, oh, great. And I felt, I just felt there was something odd and I couldn't put my finger on it. So I started to observe them. And the first thing I thought was they have no carry-on luggage, nothing, not a bag from, from the thing, from the place where they sell gum and so on. No books, no carry-on, no computer. Four men, all the same age, all dressed alike of in mind, middle age, middle European, middle Eastern origin. And I just paid attention. All right. So some of the other bombshells in here. And by the way, I know a lot of people might be mad at the family guy thumbnail. They brought Family Guy up several times in this, and I'm going to show you why. It's really bizarre, but they actually brought up a clip pre-9-11 in a May 30th, 2000 episode of Family Guy called Road to Rhode Island, where Stewie sneaks weapons on a plane by distracting TSA agents. And remember, that's a big thing with these lawyers. They're saying they're they're alluding to the fact that they got other weapons on the planes, not just box cutters, and they may have had help from the inside. From all accounts of everything I've read, that's what they're stating. And of course, they should have known because bin Laden was a known terrorist and he was going to hijack planes. And after Stewie gets these weapons through, he actually says, oh, I hope Osama bin Laden doesn't use this airport. Now, a lot of people will talk about pre-programming, pre-conditioning. That's absolutely possible. But it's something they talk about in this and we'll get to it but he also discusses how these guys completely ignored completely ignored the stewardess okay like would not look to look at her would not talk to her and he said it wasn't really in a rude way but let's see if we can get ignore come up next yes here it is we'll read this um although it could not have been i'm not sure uh, and they were on the same side as I. And by the way, this is very meticulous. He takes note, by the way, not only that they ignored her, but that they only became interested. And he said they were all in first class with him, by the way, behind him, when the door to the cockpit opened. And that's where they kind of communicated with each other. And it was after that incident uh, where he actually takes one of the knives, and they were metal knives then from the meal, and put it in the back. That's how nervous he was. Okay, but we're going to talk about how these guys completely ignored her. Um, and that was when they basically just uh, asked him to take their seats. And that's what, what initially got him to look at them. Um, and I specifically mentioned that because of their reaction. It's something I noticed. Asked them if they would, pay, would, they would take their seats and they completely ignore her. And she asked them like, gentlemen, would you please sit down? And they ignored her. And I thought... And I made a judgment in my mind, not a fact, but I made a judgment in my mind. And I thought, oh, well, so far, your impression seems to be along the same line. So let's jump down. Oh. This is when they she asked them about the meal. Okay. So again, they completely ignore, ignore her. They don't think it's, he doesn't think it's a rudeness thing, maybe a cultural thing, but Again, they really seem interested in what the cockpit. So let's scroll all the way back up here, get to that section. All right, let's read this. My impression at the time that I observed them and I had turned around to do it, turn a little to my left and behind to do it, 
They were very quiet. Okay. I thought quite intense. And the only time they indicated, indicated anything different was when, was when the cabin personnel came out of the, out of the cockpit door to go to the men's room. And they start to get very meticulous on that as well, to go to the lavatory. Okay, when the cabin uh, personnel came out of the cockpit, was it a man or a woman? I mean, they go, again, everything is to meticulous detail. Let's see if it's knife. Yes. So, again, Woods is um, so upset, so suspicious of these guys. He says this, I had a very uncomfortable feeling, and at the time they used metal utensils, and I kept the knife from my food service and wiped it off and put it in the seat back in front of me. Okay, with reference to your feeling uncomfortable, how would you describe that particular flight? And remember, this is actually flight 11. Um, he can't be 100% certain of it, but he says he's almost certain it was the uh, Boston Logan to LA flight 11. Now, he flew all the time. That's part of the deposition. I, I feel like I got to go over that as well just really quickly. So, now, after this is when he approaches the woman. Okay? Let's see. Is is 40s, I believe? Yes. Maybe around 40. So, here it is. I said, you, do you know who I am? She said, yes. I said, I hope you will in the context of what I'm about to say think that I'm a responsible individual and not some lunatic. And she said, okay. I said, I know you're not supposed to use words like this in flights on an American in the United States on aircraft. I know it can be construed to be some kind of crime, but I have this feeling that it's possible this plane could be hijacked. And I thought she was going to think I was, you know, a little concerned about her response. And she said, odd, I was thinking the same thing. And I said, oh, well, maybe we should talk to someone about this. She said, I think so too. She said, I'm glad you brought this up because I was having discomfort. And I said, we're talking about the gentleman sitting behind me in the on the two sides. And she said, yes. So she, and then he gets interrupted, talks about, you know, woman in her 40s, not too young, not too old. And she tells him he's coming out. So this is when um, he has the conversation. He says, uh, so who are these people? And he gestured. And I said to him, ah, and he looked. <laughs> and just tell me. I said, well, uh, just I can't explain it. But, and the way I described it to him then, I said, it's kind of like this. I made reference to a movie. So he talked about Scarface to him and a scene in Scarface where these assassins are in there and everybody's <clears throat> cheering and, you know, all involved. But these guys are not paying attention at all. So he then tells him he's going to file a report. Let's bring the report up, right? Yes, right there. And he said, no. You know what? We're just uh, going to keep the cockpit door locked and we'll just make a little report. And I said, okay. And that was that. Okay. So all of this now testimony in a lawsuit, all of it ignored, all of it ignored by the 9-11 commission prior to 9-11. And remember, this is an FAA report. We know the FBI report. 
also followed up. Now, he says he didn't know anything about an FBI report, but I want to talk about Seymour Hirsch because he does. So Seymour Hirsch actually confirms to him and uh, supposedly another um, FBI agent, Ron Eiliff, is mentioned in this with an EI, but I couldn't find anything on him. I'm not sure if that's even his real name. I'm not sure they spelled it correctly. But he says that this upper echelon FBI guy uh, acknowledged that those reports were real from the FAA. And Hirsch says they were real. Let's see if we can find Hirsch. Man. Let's see if we can find Seymour. There he is. So here he brings up the fact that Seymour Hirsch, who did a piece on this and some of the surrounding information, okay, for the New Yorker, confirmed this to him, okay? A reporter named Seymour Hirsch told me after an article he wrote in the New Yorker on covering this incident and other aspects of, I think, 9-11, I don't remember. I read the article once. I don't remember it well. But in the conversation that I had with him by the phone, after the, I'm not sure if it was after the article came out or it was about to come out, he told me that the two, that two, so the stewardess more than likely and the pilot, two reports had been filed with the FAA. He said the FAA and he said one by the flight attendant and by the first officer of the flight I was on. So again, pre 9-11, and this is what's also crazy. He names two hijackers that did not hijack Flight 11. Now, he thinks four of them were there. He says two he can name definitely. And the other two, I know, was it Muhammad Atta and somebody else? Remember, Muhammad Atta is involved in Flight 911, uh, on uh, Flight 11. Who are the other hijackers he names in this? Well, I'm glad you asked because he names Hamza Al-Ghamdi, who was involved in, I believe, 175, okay? and Khalid Al-Madar, Flight 77. And these associations aren't really supposed to be taking place. This is begging so many questions. Now, that clip from Family Guy and that's brought up in here. Okay, you see this right here behind me? I wanna bring the uh, transcript back up. See if we got Bin Laden over here. Here we go. So there's some trouble in there, and they start talking about this road to Rhode Island clip and on the good ship Lollipop. And let's hope Osama Bin Laden doesn't know show tunes because they actually talk about Seth MacFarlane here, and you find out how uh, James Woods got the gig on Family Guy in this deposition. Really bizarre stuff, but I promise you it's there. Anybody can check this out. Um, anybody who wants to download it anyway. But post 9-11, after this, they took this out of the episode. Go try to find this anywhere. I don't think it was ever put on the uh, DVD or Blu-ray sets. Um, I, I don't want a copyright strike, so I may talk a little bit through it. But here we go. This shop where bonbons play. And you saw right there that he's sneaking weapons through. Talking about bombs. On the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. And there it goes through. Let's hope Osama Bin Laden doesn't know show tunes. Oh. Pre-9-11, that's how known it was that, quote-unquote, Bin Laden and his network wanted to hijack planes. And that's another part of this lawsuit. And another thing that they really harp on in these documents. Folks, 
If you like my work, please go check out Fabled Enemies. It's free on the channel. Hit the like, share, and subscribe buttons. And we can stop it there. Um, I hope people understand why we did that companion piece. God, I am looking back at that Jason Burmas and this Jason Burmas. I'm getting old. Got a little bit of a gizzard here. And uh, I need to lose some weight. Okay. So, last night, I was I'm scrolling through my feed. And I just want to show this very quickly. Not go too hardcore on it. Um, these are the vans worn by uh, the shooter that's lying dead there. I know that there's been controversy as to whether or not the, the flame vans, which in that photo, which is body cam footage, it appears to be. And then you have the, could, the people have said Pumas, but there could just be the black vans. I don't know one way or the other. I feel like they're probably the fire vans. But those black vans circulated all over the internet as Pumas or whatever. And the other ones um, were also on the internet everywhere. SNL does this political diatribe on them trying to sell you this idea that, of course, the bills that are being passed, okay, the bills that are being passed, they're anti-LGBTQ whatever. It's not real. They're anti the abuse of children. And they bring on their first quote-unquote non-binary member who may be funny in other regards, not funny at all in this sketch, wearing a Grimace outfit, like a full purple Grimace outfit, coming down from the sky so you can see the shoes and then being pulled back up to the sky so you can see the shoes. And they're the same shoes as the trans shooter who wasn't really trans again, wanted to be maybe, but was suicidal. This is what it wanted death by cop. We haven't seen the manifesto or whatever it is, but somehow there's been sympathy to this person that killed little children. Okay. And the only way that I'm going to be sympathetic is the fact that I'm going to imagine this person had extreme mental health issues. And instead of those mental health issues being solved, they were encouraged and they were probably drugged up on psychotropics. Even though the family tries to say there was no history of mental illness by this person's very nature, I find that extremely hard to believe. And we still haven't gotten a toxicology report. So uh, with that being said, I'm going to play this clip from SNL. And again, you tell me whether this, this is funny or not. You, you tell me whether or not this is just a political diatribe and really a political diatribe that wants to hurt kids, not help kids. And they use all sorts of psychological manipulation in the language like you're bad. If you don't want to shoot kids up with hormone blockers, what? Since the start of this year, over 400 anti. 
Since the start of this year, over 400 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced across the country, many of which directly <laughs> target trans youth. Here to talk about There's no such thing as trans youth. That's not real. Okay, so so again, there, there's no attack on lesbians or gay people or their rights or again transsexuals transvestites I, I just can't go the transgender route because that's the language that's being used what to abuse kids and push us towards a transhumanist agenda that's what it really is about it is someone with their own introduction <laughs> <laughs> So once again, and, and look at that, that's pretty interesting. These are the black ones. And just from the lighting here, you'll notice that they, they pick up yellow pretty easily. I'm not saying much. Again, I, I'm on the fence whether these are the fire ones or they're just the black ones with some kind of a weird lighting effect, especially with the compression. Um, but as you can see, you know, just a little bit of lighting and all of a sudden, those shoes are very different, aren't they? Hmm. Non-binary cast member, it's Molly Darnie. So did, did he call her who's supposed to be they? And there's no such thing as they because that means plural and there's only one person, one human being there. Miss Molly Carney? I, I must have just heard miss in my brain because, I, you know, I'm a victim of the patriarchy. And it does look like there's a print of some sort on those shoes that were kind of obscured. <laughs> Made it. Thank you, Mr. J. Molly, what is all this? Well, as you know, I've been wanting to come to Update and talk about trans people. But I have, for a much longer time than that, wanted to fly down from the ceiling. <laughs> and did it live up to your expectations? Yeah, but I'm not going to lie. This harness is pretty tight. And my groin area is beefed. <laughs> what? I mean, none of this seems to be funny. I have no idea whether this person is a funny comedian. But I'm going to tell you right now, I I've yet to hear a joke. I've been hung up on my genitals for far too long, and I'm starting to feel like a freaking Republican lawmaker. Hello! So now, Republican lawmakers' genitals are in a bunch. That's that's the first attempt at a joke. Awesome transition. So, as of this week, <laughs> there are now over 14 states that have passed bills restricting health care for trans kids. Restricting health care for there's no such thing as a trans kid. Okay, so right now we're in the post-truth world where you're just supposed to accept their terminology. It's not real. Okay? That's not a real thing. But because you don't want children taking life-altering drugs and having life-altering surgery before they can even consent legally to adult sexual behavior or a contract with the government where they go into the military before any of that 
you're going to argue that you want to do this to children who are highly impressionable, which they know and why they're targeted. Okay. And in most cases, have not yet defined who they will become as an adult because that's part of growing up. Listen to that, Michael. Yeah. Restricting healthcare for kids. For some reason, there's something about the word trans that makes people forget the word kids. Again, not funny. Weird tattoo on your finger. I get it. You're more than likely a very mentally disturbed individual who's also on these type of psychotropic medications. Now, maybe Molly here isn't on psychotropic medications. I doubt that. I doubt that highly. I, I mean, this is not health care or life-saving care in any way, shape, or form. It's not. It doesn't save lives. When you look at the numbers on that community, they have the most suicides. Okay? Suicide. How are you saving lives if you are literally irreversibly changing somebody either through hormones, right? Either through hormones, biology, which can never change their true biology, their chromosomes, okay? And also just destructive surgery, which you can't come back from. But, but that, it's healthcare. No, it's not. If you don't care about trans kids' lives, it means you don't care about freaking kids' lives. Wow, wow. There's no such thing as a trans kid. There are kids, and I care about their lives very much, and that's why I don't want you to, you know, mutilate them. And that's why it's common sense for lawmakers to stop this, to say no more. I'm, I'm very, I very much don't like that. This is again. Where are the jokes? What's funny here? I can, uh, I can totally really upset about that. I am, and also my legs are going numb, and I might pass out. <laughs> How long were you hanging up there? Longer than I would have liked. Uh, I tried to call down, but no one could hear me. You know, at one point, I heard a crew guy say, is she going to die up there? <laughs> and then another guy was like, you mean, are they going to die up there? <laughs> and then they both walked away and didn't help. <laughs> Which feels a lot like how trans people are being treated right now. But don't worry, we have a code word for emergencies. And I love code words. Trans people have code words now. You're not. First of all, you're not a trans person, as far as I know. You're not on hormones, and you're not getting surgery. Yeah, you're not. You're not a they. There is no they. That's not real either. And I would say that you are more than likely heavily medicated and easily mentally manipulated and it was trans rights oh my gosh good golly uh, that was the code for confetti <laughs> my bad bud that was so loud well yeah people need to wake up we are making trans kids grow up too fast we should first of all
making trans kids grow up too fast. No, you grow as a human being, again, according to your biology, it's not necessarily an easy thing. There's some rough road along the way. Like, it's not to me a mistake that at the same time I'm watching this, I'm watching Amazon commercials with a girl with the developing a mustache. And hey, I get it, women, you, you, the mustache is real on a lot of you. There's some waxing. I'm not trying to say, hey, you suck for having a mustache, but all of a sudden that person is embracing the mustache and wearing a Freddie Mercury jacket. Now, is that really going to make you feel better about yourself? I, I'm sorry that social norms have it that males are not a, a, attracted to women with mustaches. Just not the way it is. That societal norm can stay, in my opinion. But no societal norm that embraces or encourages the mutilation of children and then tries to make a political diatribe on a comedy show about it. I'm out, Jack. Keep keeping them safe, and we need to lift them off. Oh, not, not me, them. <laughs> I mean the kids. <laughs> Jay, they got my pronouns right. Let's go. So now you can clearly see that there are things What's happening, kids, is wrong, and you don't need to be scared. Our job is to protect you, and your job is to focus on being a kid. It's kind of like me flying in the SNL sky. There's a bunch of dudes asking you about your crotch and controlling you <laughs> where you're allowed to pee. No. The only ones that's asking about their crotch are the ones that are encouraging this. The people advocating for kids being kids don't want non-parental figures talking about their child genitals with them. Okay? They don't. But if you just hang on, you'll look up and realize, you're flying, kid! <laughs> hey! Hey, Mr. J, am I still in the frame? I mean, your feet. So... Again, you, you can see there's some kind of a design there. Your feet are in the frame, but you can see those vans. You are. <laughs> Trans Rock! <laughs> now what I want to see, show you though, those, you can kind of see them, you can barely see them. You get another couple feet away, and you're not going to be able to see them. Compressed video, it's going to make them look black. So. Uh, again, I, from top to bottom, I feel like we, we've solved that nonsensical, wrong conspiracy theory. Good night. Like, again, was any of that funny to anybody? I didn't think it was funny at all. Not even a little bit. Just want to point that out. Not, nothing funny about that. Thank you. Nope. Definitely not. All right, so I want to play these commercials, <clears throat> and I'm constantly having to see these damn things. 
And I've been talking about and talking about how many of these drugs do we need, by the way? Pills, injections. I, I, I mean, I, I think on top of the fact that a lot of people, because of a certain decision they made over the past couple of years, are going to develop autoimmune disorders, among many other things, neurological disorders, among many other things. I know the heart or uh, <laughs> the hot topic is the heart. Uh, I think that's the tip of the iceberg. Now, at the same time, I think that these commercials, which are on daytime television all the time, which again, when I don't understand, like maybe there's a ton of people with HIV watching the History Channel, but I'm constantly seeing these commercials on the history channel and uh we're, we're just going to start with the first one and then we're going to watch the extended version uh but i believe the first one is the one that i see the most to help protect from hiv i prep without pills with amplitude a prescription medicine used to reduce the risk of hiv without daily prep pills oh i've also noticed with these things the target are is never straight white people when it's straight people they're always going to um black people let's be honest i i i don't even see latin people certainly not asian people like in a heterosexual relationship being sold on these drugs maybe that's going to change but but this is very uh, very much getting you accustomed to the idea of trans people everywhere. But as I've said before, get on a, a bus, get on a plane, go to an airport. How many of them are there? Seriously, think about that. With one shot every other month, just six times a year. Yeah, let's inject you six times a year with something that supposedly might maybe help with stopping HIV somehow. Very skeptical of that. I wonder why. In studies, Apertude was proven superior to a daily PrEP pill. So uh, Truvada is another one, the, the daily PrEP pill. We're prepping. Reducing the risk of HIV. You must be HIV negative to receive Apertude and get tested before each injection. If you think now you're taking an HIV test every two months on top of the uh, injection. And, and here we have at least two trans people with I'm not sure what, but again, Apertude. Exposed to HIV or have flu-like symptoms, tell your doctor right away. Apertude does not prevent other sexually transmitted infections. Practice safer sex to reduce your risk. Don't take Apertude if you are allergic to it or taking certain medicines as they may interact. Tell your doctor if you've had liver problems or mental health concerns. If you have a rash or other allergic reactions, stop Apertude. There's the Asian guy, but the Asian guy they're selling you on is at a gay club. So again, it... Very bizarre to me how they they uh, target the uh, the black ethnicity with these in heterosexual relationships, but you don't see that with any other group. 
medical help right away. Serious side effects include allergic reactions, liver problems, and depression. Some of the most common side effects include injection site reactions and headache. You must receive Apertube in schedule. Ask your doctor about long-acting Apertube and prep without pills. Save at Apertube.com. Without pills. And you might get a $0 copay. Wouldn't that be great? So now we're going to play the extended commercial of Apertude. Apertude, Truvada, Keytruda. How many of these things? And I and I saw a, a I started to see a huge uptake uptick in this just pre-COVID 1984. Just want to point that out as well. Just a fact, Jack. It's a fact, Jack. Bring on another way to help protect from HIV. I prep without pills. Bring on Apertude, long-acting protection from HIV. Apertude is a prescription medicine used to reduce the risk of HIV without daily prep pills. Bring on not worrying about daily doses. I prep without pills. Apertude is the first and only long-acting prep with one shot every other month, just six times a year. Apertude was proven superior to a daily prep pill in reducing the risk of HIV in head-to-head studies and was among the most diverse prep studies ever conducted. Most diverse PrEP studies ever conducted. Studies included cisgender men and women and transgender women. (laughs) You must be HIV negative to receive Apertube and get tested before each injection. If you think you were exposed to HIV or have flu-like symptoms, tell your doctor right away. Apertube does not prevent other sexually transmitted infections. Practice safer sex to reduce your risk. Don't take Apertube if you are allergic to it or taking certain medicines as they may interact. Tell your doctor if you've had liver problems or mental health concerns. If you have a rash or other allergic reactions, stop Apertube and get medical help right away. Serious side effects include allergic reactions, liver problems, and depression. Some of the most common side effects include injection site reactions. Hey, sailor. Hey, Chip. Like, what is this? This is, I mean, if you don't think there's another agenda behind this, it's to normalize, uh, normalize anything that's outside of traditional relationships and the traditional nuclear family, which they want to destroy at every level. And that's not a stay together for the kids thing. It's just fact. And I'm sorry, but most people, if not all people, wish they had both parents and that they got along. Not that they would stay together if they had a rotten and shit relationship. But once again, if they were getting along with one another, right, and um, that doesn't mean they wouldn't fight, and they stayed together, that's what every kid wants, a mommy and a daddy. But that's not what they want for you and society. Headache. You must receive opportunity scheduled. Bring on a different way to help me stay continuously protected from HIV. Ask your doctor about long-acting Apertude today. And you notice they got to have dudes kiss in every single one. Every single one. Ask yourself, how many commercials, even over the years, don't get me wrong, there are some out there where men kiss women, but how many commercials when they're advertising something like that, make sure to put that in. It's very rare. It's very rare. And prep without pills. 
Save with Aperture.com. Save with Aperture. All right, I got a couple more clips that I wanted to go over. Um, man, I, I didn't hit the news. In fact, there's one story just really quickly I want I want to hit on the Epstein thing. Maybe we'll do more on it uh, tomorrow. In fact, we'll have to. Billionaire Les Wexner used bodyguards uh, to dodge subpoena in the scandalous Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking lawsuit against J.P. Morgan. It's in the court documents. Wexner, some have described him from the inside as the head of the snake, very much a part of this Epstein network, um, which many people have yet to really understand um, the intelligence and business ties and the multinational intelligence ties of Epstein and his cohorts. I'll leave it at that. And of Dirty Dersh, who's on the TV all the time, still Wexner's lawyer. Dirty Dersh on all the networks now, doing all the interviews. All right. Um, I want to talk quickly about the Ukraine leaks, because as I said before, and, and I'm sticking by it, it feels like First of all, I think the kid that released them is genuine, and they certainly show a different picture of the war that the mainstream media um, was showing and, and continues to show. And it gave the mainstream media uh, an excuse to really further bootlick like never before about, and by the way, looks like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Bellingcat, all helped catch this guy illegally, all right, a real whistleblower trying to blow the whistle. But the question is, how did this person really get the documents? And was he set up to release them? Because the overarching theme is that we're just going to have to supply more money, more equipment, and eventually troops. Okay, that that's what's troubling. And the media just holds water for that. Doesn't ask about the documents or what's going on. Doesn't question the war. What steps has the DOD taken to reduce the number of people who have access so not only these classified briefings, but classified material in general. So it's all about hammering that these this guy's a bad person that we shouldn't know. They're protecting the military industrial complex. You say there are strict probe uh, protocols in place, and yet a 21-year-old airman was able to access some of the nation's biggest secrets. How did this happen? And isn't this a massive security breach? Kaka! Kaka! Well. This guest on uh, Judge Napolitano's show breaks down essentially that these leaks were allowed to happen. And in my mind, I think they were allowed to happen as well. I think that these were put into this guy's hands knowing he would eventually leak them. Okay, in other words, they wanted them in the public arena for a certain reason. So, and, and I think I've, I've described those reasons to extend the war, to continue the effort to fully indulge this fantasy that we should be in a hot conflict with Russia. No. Larry Johnson uh, joins us now. Uh, Larry, in the past 12 hours, the Washington Post has come out with a story that seems too fantastic to believe that the leaker of the um, uh, secured top secret no foreign uh, documents prepared by and for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his team 
is in fact a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman from Fort Bragg uh, or Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, and uh, that this was originally shared amongst a group of teenage gamers, uh, of all things. Is this even remotely credible? No, no. It's a lie. It's fabrication. Uh, the Washington Post, the first, this first surfaced with a cat, Bellingcat. Bellingcat is uh, a front for the British intelligence. That's where the story first surfaced. Washington Post then picks it up and the Guardian then picks it up on the same day. So this is a coordinated media strategy. This is a disinformation campaign. The documents are real. I'm not saying that the documents are fabrications. They are not. But this cover story that's been manufactured to explain how these documents came to be produced, it just falls apart. It most simply falls apart based upon one document in that mix, which is listed as CIA Operations Center. See, and I like that this guy is bringing the receipts and showing you why this should have never occurred and how there is an ulterior motive to all of it, which I totally believe. I think is absolutely accurate. Report top secret. I worked in the CIA operations center. I helped prepare those reports. That's an internal CIA document. No one on a U.S. military base anywhere in the world will have access to that kind of document for starters. Who, who or what is spreading the mis, uh, misinformation? Is this CIA feeding garbage to their friends in the American and British uh, media? I, I put it above the CIA. This is within the, this is elements connected to the office of the director of national intelligence, because that's the one place where you can you bring together CIA, FBI, NSA, DIA, all the key elements. They are the one place in the U.S. government where you can assemble all this material. And the way this thing was so neatly packaged up, you know, until I saw that CIA document, I was inclined to believe that this was simply the act of a whistleblower wanting to flag the problems about the public discrepancy between what Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, and Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the lies they were telling in public as opposed to the actual reality of what they were being briefed on uh, in secret, top secret briefings every day. How embarrassed is the uh, Biden White House the Pentagon and Langley CIA over these leaks? Uh, some are embarrassed and horrified by it, but what I think the strategy that's underway is this information was leaked with a variety of purposes to prepare the U.S. public for the crash landing that's going to take place with respect to U.S. foreign policy, the crash landing in Ukraine, the crash landing in China, in fact, we're already seeing elements of just the, if you call it the- Are you saying this was a controlled leak yes. done by management, not done by some Edward Snowden, Bradley right. Manning type? Yeah, by some elements within management who thought this was a good idea. I mean, this, this shows how both unprofessional and ridiculous it is. I mean, and dangerous. And the information that was leaked about Israel, part of that comes from a FISA. Uh, you know, it's got a FISA classification on it, which that does necessarily mean this is Department of Justice FBI territory. So again, there's no way that some National Guardsman who's doing TDY at Fort Bragg 
would have access to that. And, and I'm, I'm not basing that upon what happened to me 40 years ago. I, for 23 years, for 23 years, up until about three years ago, I worked in these skiffs and I still have friends that do who are retired CIA and retired NSA and, and retired FBI. And I talked to them and they're still seeing the material. None of them, none of them have seen anything like this, particularly that CIA operations center document or the FISA document that, that right. they're, they have complete access to the high side, the top secret side. They have special access programs, SAP clearances. So that's why I say this thing is, this thing is too tidy a package. This has been wrapped up nice and neatly. This is like an episode of law and order. If you own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you, you don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees, or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. <laughs> Ari Melber trying to be serious there. Uh, yeah, that's actually a real threat. And he even mentioned Facebook there, but he, but obviously targeting the musker nuts and just the tone deaf nature of that when shadow banning was going on before the Trump run and the Trump presidency and certainly before the Q nonsense took hold or even what the fight against misinformation and disinformation because of the COVID-1984 nightmare. I mean, Ari Melber is a joke. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. <laughs> Ari Melber, a joke for the establishment. That's going to do it for me. That's going to wrap it on up. You did see, uh, if you were staying with me all day, parts of Fabled Enemies. Please watch the whole thing. Fabled Enemies, Loose Change, Final Cut, both in my playlist. Uh, across the board here at redvoicemedia.com and uh, over on YouTube, etc. Very worth watching. I think powerful films, Loose Change Final Cut, Fable Enemies, Invisible Empire, and New World Order to Find and Shade the Motion Picture. They're my big picture pictures. And uh, remember, share the info. Make sure you're subscribed on Rumble. Uh, and as always, it's not about left or right, guys. It's about right and wrong. And we'll see you all on the flip side.